Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook and your host for this weekly review of all the latest news and developments affecting the investment trust sector. My thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast, which as a result will now remain free for the foreseeable future. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. This is the final podcast of the year, so it obviously behoves me to start by wishing all the listeners a happy new year and hopefully also a prosperous one. Uh, what a year it has been. We've seen extraordinary switchbacks in bond market, a much stronger performance from equities than uh, many people expected at the start of the year, and undoubtedly for investment trust investors, a real roller coaster of a year. Significant derating in the first nine months of the year, followed by an encouraging revival since the middle of October. Well, the first thing to say, perhaps, is that most things that uh, the experts predicted at the start of the year failed to happen. We didn't get a recession. We didn't see a stock market decline even further after the declines of 2022. And some markets performed remarkably well, and notably the US uh, equity market led by the Magnificent Seven. Those stocks which are deemed to have some connection with uh, artificial intelligence in particular had a storming year as did NASDAQ, not surprisingly, in the US, and the S&P 500 was up uh, notably over the year, uh, starting the year at somewhere in the region of 3,800 and finishing at nearly uh, 1,000 points higher at 47.70 or so. It wasn't such a good year again for the UK equity market, the FTSE 100 finishing, the index at least finishing the year a little bit higher than it was at the start of the year, but uh, not a particularly significant return, though of course you can add in the yield to that. Japanese equity market was also another standout performer over the course of the year. But the biggest disappointment uh, was the Chinese equity market, which uh, failed to take off despite a promising start to the year with high hopes of a strong recovery as the Chinese economy came out of its uh, prolonged enforced lockdown. The real story of the year, however, centred on what happened to the bond market, where we saw the Federal Reserve and other central banks continue to raise rates to help try and eliminate the high inflation that they'd uh, notably failed to anticipate. One of the fastest, if not the fastest, series of significant interest rate rises uh, consecutive for many months in the case of the Federal Reserve, pushing bond yields up in their wake to a peak of over 5%, having started the year at 4% or so looking at the 10-year note, the 10-year benchmark treasury, actually started the year at around 3.85 or so and finished almost exactly the same place at 3.88, but a significant roller coaster ride along the way as the market first failed to anticipate the Federal Reserve's interest rate increases and then promptly started to discount them in the autumn following a signal from the central bank's chairman, Jay Powell. Similar story in the gilt markets where we saw yields rise significantly to 5% or more, having started the year at a lower level. But again, the tide turning in the last 10 weeks or so of the year. It was here also when we saw some interesting movements in commodity markets. The same underlying story in a way. We saw rises in the oil price during the course of the summer, but overall crude oil ended the year slightly down on the year, despite the continuing war in Ukraine and the outbreak of a serious war in the Middle East. 
Gold, however, was a strong performer, up significantly to around $2,100 at the end of the year, having started little over 1800 That was a traditional refuge in times of uncertainty. Meanwhile, Dr. Copper, the price of copper, ended the year only mildly higher than it started. Again, reflecting the more resilient economic story around the world than many had expected at the start of the year. The overall Bloomberg Commodity Index was down around 10% or so over the year. And another big story of the year was what happened to the US dollar. Well, that too went on a very similar roller coaster ride, flat ish over the first half of the year, and then rising significantly into the autumn, and then selling off again quite sharply and finishing the year a little bit below where it started. So, all these indicators pointing to this same story of a roller coaster year. Turning to the investment trust world, the investment trust index finished the year actually up a little, but not as significantly higher as some of the major equity markets, notably the US. The index itself posted a return of 1.82% over the year. Again, a little bit more if you add in the dividend yield, which was not a bad result considering where we were in the middle of the year when discounts had continued to widen, reaching a peak of almost 19% at one stage in October. Since then, however, we have seen significant re-rating and the average discount on the sector has narrowed back into around 13.5%. Depends a little bit how you measure the uh, Investment Trust universe's performance, whether or not you include 3i and how many Investment Trusts you include, whether you include those in the index or those outside the index. But essentially, the average discount at the end of the year was not that far removed from where it started the year. So again, a similar sort of story in the end. So those who just sat tight through the year which is often not a bad strategy unless you very have high conviction what the market is going to do in the short term. Most investors in investment trusts, on average, will have seen a positive return over the year, surprising as that may have seemed given the gloomy headlines and the, a lot of talk about the imminent demise of the sector that uh, came out of some quarters uh, during the course of the year. Certainly there have been a host of issues to be discussed later, I shall be discussing the year with uh, Richard Stone, the Chief Executive of the Association of Investment Companies, in just a moment. These issues included continuing concern about the impact of regulatory cost disclosure requirements, which some argue have had a significant impact on the ability of wealth managers and other institutional investors to buy and own investment trusts. We had a couple of corporate disasters, I think it's fair to call them that, with the shares of Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact and Home REIT being suspended amidst uh, concerns about project developments and uh, accounting irregularities, possibly even fraud in the latter case. That remains to be determined, but both trusts are expected when their shares do return to be trading at a significant discount to the previous price before the shares were suspended. And there was significant derating also in the alternative assets sector as gilt yields rose. I have posted a list of the strongest performers over the course of 2023 in the Investment Trust universe in the weekly email to uh, Moneymakers Circle subscribers. So I won't rehearse them all here, except to say there were some uh, notably strong performances. Uh, Important to look at the uh, total returns, not just the uh, share price returns. And of course, also a number of disappointments. A number of trusts which have not re-rated or not responded to the more positive tone in markets over the last few weeks and are still posting 
losses of 20% or so in some cases, and even more for a couple of examples, such as Digital 9 infrastructure, which has had a torrid year. There's only a very limited amount of news this week, so I'm going to skip over that fairly quickly. We had results from Chenavari, Toro Income and Geiger Counter, the latter producing a strong NAV total return of 36.2% over its latest reporting period. And Chenavari, Toro Income, uh, ticker T-O-R-O, also producing a positive total return of around 11%. In such news as there was, a few announcements this week. Only three of any note. Uh, one is Biopharma Credit, ticker BPCR, passed a continuation vote. Downing Strategic Microcap updated investors on its managed wind-down plans. And there was another distribution realisation by HG Capital, ticker HGT. For subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle, our latest profile will be out next week. There's none this week. And will feature Schroeder Asia Total Return, ticker ATR. All that and more you can find, as I say, in our new weekly email, which goes out each weekend and includes additional commentary and information about the Investment Trust Universe. So this week, uh, I had the opportunity to catch up with Richard Stone, who is the Chief Executive of the Association of Investment Companies, the Industries Trade Association, that engages in a lot of work to uh, help promote the sector and work with government on regulatory issues and so on. Now, Richard, you've been the uh, Chief Executive of the AIC since September 2021. So you've had a bit of a baptism of fire in a way, because it's been a pretty, should we say, challenging period for the investment trust sector over the last two years. We've had rising interest rates. We've seen discounts widen significantly. We've seen one or two investment trusts run into serious problems. But that's what you're there for, to cope with these challenges. First of all, just tell us how you've found the experience so far over the two and a bit years you've been the chief executive, and then we might drill down into some of the more specific issues. No, it's good. And it's an amazing sector to be able to represent, not least because of its diversity, both in terms of the the range of companies that are covered, the different sectors, the different people you meet as our member directors, the non-executives who are providing um, stewardship and governance over the companies. Yeah, it's an amazing sector. But in the last two years, it's certainly been through something of a roller coaster. I mean, we've had sort of record levels of fundraising and then significantly subdued levels of fundraising, given the significant change that we've seen in the, the sort of macroeconomic backdrop, interest rates, inflation, the war in Ukraine, the trouble now in the Middle East, etc. So there's been a lot going on, both at a macro level in terms of regulation and things. So yeah, it's certainly been a busy two years, Jonathan, that's for sure. It certainly has. Very unkindly, I took I've been looking up the sort of investment trust performance since you were appointed. Mm-hmm. And it's fair to say that because of all these factors, which are well outside your control, I hasten to add, that the number of investment trusts have produced a positive total return is lower than the number who have actually produced a negative return. But that's because of these external factors uh, almost exclusively. What has been the main contact you've had, should we say, with your member companies over the last two years? Has it been about performance? Has it been about discounts? Has it been about government regulations? What's been the focus of your membership's concerns over this period? I think it's changed during that two-year period, as you might expect, given the significant change in the economic backdrop. And certainly over the last six to 12 months, it's been much more heavily focused on discounts, discount control, what member companies can do in that regard, the difference between the approaches that Perhaps some of our members who are invested in other listed equities can take and have liquidity in their portfolio relative to some of the alternative sector. I think some of the challenges, particularly in the alternative sector, where they've seen themselves go from 
trading at a premium and having the ability to raise additional capital into a situation where they're potentially trading at quite large discounts and the challenges that that's presented for boards and members. So they've definitely been up towards the top of the list. I think more recently, challenges and concerns over cost disclosure and the impact that costs and and charges and disclosures are having on some buyers of the sector, particularly in the, the sort of wealth manager fund of funds type areas. So yeah, there's there's a mix of performance regulation, discounts, etc. But I would say discounts and regulation have been the two key things really in the last six to twelve months. And boards have been very active. You know, we've seen a lot going on. There's been a lot of activity in that regard. So yeah, it's been, as I said earlier, a busy time. It's fair to say also that there's been quite a lot of negativity out there about the discounts widening and, and people have seen that in their portfolios. But I think it's fair to say that this year, because of the rally we've seen in the last couple of months, actually the majority of investor trusts have delivered a positive return over this year, which may not be how it seems like when you read the media. But I mean, I think it's fair to make that point. Yeah, I mean, I think it's challenging. We have a, we have a very diverse sector. So we have over 300 members, 260 billion in assets across a whole range of different asset classes. So when you talk about averages and performance across that range, then you know, you've clearly got quite a disparity in performance depending on which sectors and which companies you're talking about. But for sure, I think the average investment company return over the last 12 months is about 9%. Discounts have actually narrowed this year, if you take the position at the start of the year to today. I actually looked this morning on our website. If you go to the AIC.co.uk and you do the compare investment companies as a table there under our tools, which shows the average discount for the sector as a whole. And this morning was um, just under double digits. So just less than 10%, which when you compare that with the end of October, when it was almost 17%, which was the widest it had been since the financial crisis, you can see how dramatically that's sort of reversed and turned around in large part as a function of the rally that we've seen and the the changing perception of, of inflation and interest rates that's sort of become pervasive in the last five, six weeks or so, I suppose. Right. So that's based on the average performance of your members, is it? Rather than if you look at the investment trust index, it's at a slightly different figure, slightly wider. But yeah, that's a fair point across your membership. So let's just talk about some of the regulatory issues, first of all. And we must tackle this, what many people regard as an elephant in the room, which is uh, the issue of cost disclosure. And where we've seen a lot of concerns raised about this, there have been parliamentary activity with Ros Altman and Baroness Bowles and John Barron and so on, all raising the point with the government that something needs to be done about the cost disclosure issue. And we have had a response to that. So your response has been that this is all positive progress, but we haven't seen any actual action yet to resolve the issue. And we don't even have a timetable for when that might be resolved. So what actually is going on here? And what are you expecting will happen as a result of the noises that are now coming out? I don't think I'd be quite so bleak in the sense of I think we have seen some action, albeit I would accept it's exceptionally limited. But no, I mean, I think the first thing I would say is that there are a number of issues here which potentially risk being conflated. One is the issues around cost disclosure. The other is issues associated with the Alternative Investment Fund Managers Directive, or AIFMD, as it's referred to. And to some extent, the Baroness Altman's bill addresses the AIFMD. But the key issue here really at the moment is cost disclosure in terms of resolving that. And the genesis of that was concern, particularly amongst those investors who use investment companies within other fund of fund or portfolio type structures and having to pull through the costs of those investment companies into their own costs, making their product look 
very expensive when that cost is effectively captured in the return that they're making. So I think there's two things going on here. We are arguing for a change to the costs that are disclosed, and we're arguing for a change to the way in which those costs are disclosed. So I think if you look at what costs are disclosed, we're arguing very clearly that that should focus on the cost of the regulated activity of the, I would say, top co, the, the sort of lead asset manager, if you like. So if you're in a fund of funds structure, for example, you wouldn't pull through any of the costs of the underlying investment companies that you're invested in. And actually, as I said earlier, there has been some movement. The FCA, on the back of the autumn statement and the publication of a draft statutory instrument covering the PRIPS rules, and sorry, you get into acronyms very quickly in this debate, <laughs> um, that interim guidance enabled the IA, the Investment Association, to effectively reverse the guidance that it had produced on the regulations back in June 22, I think on the basis that effectively the FCA was saying they would exercise forbearance over people who didn't pull through those costs. So there has been some movement, but as I said, it is very limited. So we're arguing that but basically the cost that's disclosed should focus on the cost of the regulated activity. And that would make a fundamental difference to the amount and the nature of that cost that is disclosed by investment companies and even more so by people who use our investors in investment companies where they're using those within other structures. And then the second part, as I said, is about how those costs are then used in the distribution chain, how they're presented out to investors. And this is one of the fundamental problems with cost disclosure at the moment is the way in which those costs are surfaced to investors give the impression that they are a cost yet to come from the the value of the return. And many investors look at the yield or the return and go, well, okay, I've got a 6% return, but I'm going to face a 2% cost. I've got to take that off. Actually, all of the returns or the yields are after costs. Things like the cumulative impact of cost illustrations that, that the platforms provide, you know, again, are misleading because they just don't take into account the different characteristics of the fees and charges. And they don't, you know, I mean, for example, if you had a, a product which had a performance fee, at the moment, that would look expensive. And the illustrations may even tell you you'd lose money under all the time periods where a growth scenario of, say, just 5% is assumed. But actually, if it was just 5%, you wouldn't pay the performance fee. So you're not even comparing like with like, you know, um, the way gearing costs and things are treated in there is misleading as well. So there needs to be a fundamental overhaul of the way in which those costs get presented out to investors and make sure that there isn't any sense of double counting or yeah, so that, that's the other aspect of what we're looking at here is how those costs get surfaced to investors. So as I said, I think you've got two things going on. You've got what is the cost? What are the costs? What should be disclosed? And then how should that be disclosed? And I think to answer your last question, which was in terms of the next steps, as I said, the Treasury's published a draft statutory instrument on the relevant aspects of, of the PRIPS rules. They're going to publish one on the MIFID rules as well. And in the Treasury Select Committee, a week or so ago, the FCA confirmed that that would effectively give them all the powers that they need in order to bring forward the regulations on this. So we would expect the FCA to bring forward a consultation early in the new year on what those new cost disclosure rules might look like. So that's clearly something that we will be looking to um, heavily influence with input from our members. It's a complicated issue because there's so many parties involved. There's old EU legislation, there's the government has to act, the FCA has to do its job. 
And the whole thing just seems to be, if I could put it a bit of a bugger's model, really, to use a uh, <laughs> plebeian term. But are you confident the thing will be sorted by It will definitely be reformed because effectively the Treasury, through the statutory instruments, is giving the FCA the powers to shape those rules and to reform them. So, yes, they will be reformed. So I have no doubt. I, I mean, it's like all these things where they involve legislative and regulatory processes. They sadly move at a slower pace than we would all like. And in this particular case, as you alluded to, effectively, when we left the European Union, the directives, MIFID, PRIPS, etc., were transposed into UK law. The FCA can't change the law. It can change regulation, but it can't change the law. So effectively, we have to go through this process of the Treasury issuing statutory instruments to, in essence, what they do is repeal the law and pass the power across to the FCA. So just to interrupt you, this has still got to go through Parliament, right? Yeah, but it's not like a bill. A statutory instrument is slightly different, so it doesn't go through the same drawn-out legislative process that a bill or an act of parliament would go through. So it should be quicker. It's evident that this is coming. So we are pushing the FCA to bring forward their consultation alongside that and not wait for these things to be sequential because the FCA knows that those powers are coming. So there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to consult on those powers and what they'll do with them ahead of time, effectively. So once they get the powers, they can then act. So we are pushing for change here as quickly as possible. I mean, cost disclosure generally, as I said at the top of our discussion, it is probably the number one regulatory priority. It is the number one regulatory priority that we've been working on for the last three months or six months or so. You know, And it's the number one priority that our members have been raising with us. And, you know, seeking reform of this is is vitally important because it impacts the demand for the sector from key investor groups. Will it resolve issues with discounts and the like? Not necessarily. There are bigger macro issues as we've been talking about. But actually, as those macro issues resolve themselves, we don't want these headwinds to persist. So it's a vital sector, which in recent years has done an enormous amount to contribute to capital raising into infrastructure, renewable energy and all of those good things. And if the government wants the sector to continue helping direct capital into those things which they see as virtuous and, and address their broader agendas on those topics, then you know we need support and we need an environment which is going to enable us to thrive. Yes, it's a shame that this hasn't been dealt with earlier, of course. I mean, I think the fact that we've seen these discounts widened has actually given it more salience, this particular <laughs> issue. It's a shame it hasn't been sorted out before. But on one other point, can I just ask you this, Richard, which is you mentioned that one of the issues is how this is all disclosed. And I hear from people who are in the investment trust sector that what people like Ros Altman and people are saying and what the ASC is after is something quite different in the way it's presented. Am I right that what you want is you want to have a single sort of number that people can look at, but then you also want to categorize some of the other things that have gone into the makeup of the cost? Is that right? Or am I out of order on that? Where are the differences between you and some of the other people who are advocating for more action on cost disclosure? I think the differences are relatively narrow, to be honest. I think that what we're arguing is that there should be just one number, which is often referred to as the OCF, the ongoing charge figure, which we're saying should be redefined so it's focused almost exclusively on the manager's fee. So what's being charged by the manager for managing those assets for um, that process of intermediation. So essentially that regulated activity of asset management. So that's what we're arguing. We're not arguing that there should be other costs surfaced within the distribution chain specifically. So um, I think we are relatively close. I think the issue is the sense that, as I alluded to earlier, the way those costs get presented at the moment 
can give rise to a perception of double counting or you know, investors having a sense that those costs are yet to come. They've got to be taken off of returns. They've got to be taken into account in that way. We need to make clear in those disclosures to investors that they're trading in and out of an investment company at a share price and that that share price takes into account, along with a whole range of other things, an account of the, of the fees and charges that are within the structure. So whilst it's useful information for investors to understand and to be able to compare one against another, because that's important, those disclosures mustn't give rise to that sense of double counting and that there are these costs to come and things. So I think there's more in common between us and, and some of the other campaigners, if you want, want to describe them that way, than is often made out. I mean, the best solution would be, I would have thought, shareholders should be able to find, and they can find in, in some cases, what are the breakdown of the costs that the top company, as you refer to it, uh, are incurring. That's obviously very important. What they spend on other things, how much their admin costs, the marketing, those kind of things, to the extent that they're not part of the management fee paid to the investment advisor, that should all be disclosed. And, and unfortunately, people who invest in these things have got to do a bit more research if they want to really get to the bottom of the cost disclosure yeah, issue. And clearly, within the investment company universe, there are a spectrum of companies. So at one end, you have some managers who effectively run an open-ended and a closed-ended fund to essentially the same mandate and they are very very similar and then at the other end of the spectrum you have particularly in invested in sort of illiquid alternative assets in some cases invested in real assets you have investment companies that look more like corporate entities and are operating those assets in a way that a corporate entity that's not constituted as an investment company might do in a similar vein. So you've got to cover all of those and you've got to try and make sure that the boundary issues that regulation create are minimised and, and it's not fair that those alternative assets where they are, for example, managing and running you know, a wind farm or a property portfolio or whatever, that they're not including or we're not being caused to include what might be considered operating costs or you know running those assets effectively within their costs and charges disclosures that then make them look unduly expensive against a, a corporate that isn't having to disclose any cost to the investor. So it's about trying to make sure that those boundary issues are, if not eliminated, then significantly reduced as well. Because we know that the investment company sector provides the perfect structure for giving investors access to those illiquid assets, providing them with the diversification you know, and enabling them to invest in those sectors. Just on the related issue then, we also had the impact of consumer duty being introduced by the FCA, placing an obligation on providers of funds to demonstrate that they're offering value for money. As a result of that, we've seen platforms cancelling some funds, which is related also to the cost disclosure issue because they're including costs that we've already just talked about. That isn't a good thing, is it? I mean, what do you think about that? You must be uh, pretty no, annoyed I mean, that platforms are doing that. A number of those instances or examples have been where the investment company themselves is investing in other investment companies or investment structures, which, as I said earlier, we would argue they shouldn't have to pull through any of those synthetic costs, which would make a fundamental difference to the the level of cost that's disclosed in that way. Yeah, I mean, I think this goes to a much broader point that I have significant concern over, which is that the market is far too heavily focused on cost and least cost rather than on value and returns. And whilst one might naively hope that consumer duty places a greater emphasis on consumer outcomes and therefore the value part of that discussion, in reality, in some places, cost is being used as a shortcut to get to value. And I would argue that's an inappropriate use of or, or interpretation of consumer duty. You know, you, you should be looking at 
what provides the best return and outcome for the consumer and purely looking at or having a, a sort of targeted focus on cost specifically doesn't do that. So that's going to remain an issue until or unless we can find some way to stop people interpreting it in that way. But, but it also needs a more fundamental shift in the way that we talk about investments, about risk, about the market as a whole. There's got to be a fundamental shift towards much more of a conversation about value and outcome than about just least cost. Because if we focus purely on least cost, then ultimately we drive everybody into a passive tracker fund at a very small number of bips, which doesn't necessarily provide. I mean, it may be suitable for many and in many circumstances, but it doesn't necessarily provide either the most diverse range of exposure or the best potential returns for investors in the long term. So, yeah, I think it's about how we value active asset management and it's about how the market assesses risk and value relative to just pure least cost. Let's on one other quick regulatory thing. As long as I've been around, people have been campaigning for the abolition of stamp duty on investment trust share transactions. Any sign of progress there? Uh, Oh, that I wish I could report progress on stamp duty. I would love to. No, I mean, it's a point that we make repeatedly. Actually, I was talking to a minister earlier this week and I made the point again. So it's one we make regularly, but no particular progress to report on that front. I think at the moment where the public coffers have been somewhat stretched, asking for anything which diminishes the tax take is generally not particularly well received. But that doesn't mean that we won't keep making the ask. It's one very obvious area where investors and investors companies are disadvantaged relative to other collective vehicles. Well, on a more positive note, we have seen the extension of the VCT regulations. That will continue for another 10 years, at least, uh, unless the next government changes it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really good news and something we've been campaigning on clearly for our VCT members specifically. And yeah, the extension of that sunset clause out to 2035 gives them significant certainty and enables them to continue with confidence, uh, raising capital and directing that towards some of the brightest, newest companies in the in the UK, which need that growth capital. So, uh, you know, they perform a vital role within that capital ecosystem and, and, and filling that capital gap between sort of friends and family and the public markets, if you like. So um, long may they continue to do so. On a broader issue, often overlooked, I think that investment trusts uh, do make up a significant proportion of the largest listed companies in this country. It's significantly in the FTSE All Share Index, there's something like getting on for about a third or so, perhaps a bit less, but um, more in the 350. And there's been a lot of debate about whether the London market, stock market is uh, doing enough to attract more companies, including investment companies. Do you have an agenda that you're pushing with the government about what they can do to uh, help reform the London UK market with specific reference to investment trusts? Actually, just this morning, the FCA has announced a consultation on changes to the listings regime. There were two small IPOs this year of investment companies, relatively modest ones, but we did have two new uh, investment companies come to market. And members have raised over a billion pounds in secondary funding this year as well, even in the, the, the very tough market conditions. I think that anything that's done to invigorate the London market will be helpful to all of us. There are specific things that we're looking at around things like the prospectus directive, the ability to raise capital issue new shares without the requirement to have a prospectus, for example, would be particularly helpful in our sector. We have argued against, and and it's good to see the government rowing back from some of the more onerous aspects of the corporate governance proposals that were on the table earlier in the year. 
So yeah, there's a sort of wide sweep of things to try and make London and life for listed companies as conducive to good business as possible. And obviously, they're all areas on which we're we're campaigning and making noises. But there are any sort of specific items that would be top of your thing? What would be the thing that would, apart from the ability... Well, as I said, I think the corporate governance changes and I think the prospectus requirements are two of the top ones. I mean, I, I, on corporate governance, for example, we're still pushing on the government's proposals for managed shared audits, which would not be helpful as far as our members are concerned. So, yeah, it's those sorts of things which... We don't want additional burdens, corporate governance type burdens added into the sector. And we want the ability to list and to raise capital to be as easy as possible. And at the moment, it's not as easy as it should be. And it's certainly not as attractive as some other regimes. Yeah, And the prospectus area is a classic case in point. If you're issuing new shares that are exactly the same as ones that people can go and buy in the market today without a <laughs> reference back to a prospectus, why do you then need to issue a prospectus? You know, All of that information is out there in the market anyway. The equivalent shares are being traded today. Yeah. Well, you obviously need to keep well-paid lawyers in good form with their wine cellars being expanded regularly. Yeah, of course you do. <laughs> Let's talk about something else then. I mean, there was an interesting report this year from Quilter Cheviot, the wealth management firm, which has done an exercise about shareholder engagement in particular with uh, with boards and the way that boards are being managed and structured. They raised a number of points where they said they weren't particularly satisfied with what they were hearing back from the trust they were talking to. What was your general reaction to the kind of issues they were discussing? And were they making some good points there? I wrote the forward to their report and yeah, not necessarily endorsing its, its findings, but it's really good to be seeing what is a major investor in the sector engaging with member companies that they're invested in and setting out their expectations. And I've said to our member companies, you know, if you do nothing else, read the last three pages of their report because that sets out their expectations and gives boards a clear view as to what they as an investor expect and what boards need to be communicating with their investors on uh, in relation to those specific issues. So I think it's a good piece of work that it would be good to see other investors doing similar sorts of exercises. And I know that Courts Cheviot now are going on to look at other sectors. I think this initial report looked at their sort of equity investment companies, but they're going on to look at other sectors that they invest in. So yeah, we're very keen to encourage shareholder engagement with companies. I know that's one of the other issues that our member boards raise with me regularly is, is how they can better engage with shareholders, how they can encourage shareholders to better engage with them. You know, engagement has to be a two-way process. And to see shareholders like Quiltacheviat doing those sorts of exercises, I think is very helpful. I mean, they did come up with the obviously quite striking headline that only three investment trusts, I think, out of the 41 they talked to scored top marks on all three of the criteria they were talking about, which included the way they engaged, the way the boards are composed, and so on. You would think that would be a sign that there's quite a lot of room for improvement, wouldn't you? I think, you know, board structures, governance, composition, all of those things are always evolving and improving. And I'd argue we've made significant, well, you would expect me to, I'd argue we've made significant progress. I mean, on things like gender diversity, Diversity, now increasingly into ethnic diversity, but more than that, just the skill sets within boards, the way boards are composed. Yeah, I, th I think we've made significant strides on many of those points. Is there more to do? There's always more to do. It's never a complete exercise. Obviously, governance is one of the things that those of us who like investment trusts always bang on about. We say that that's yeah. one of the things you're getting when you invest in investment trust. You get good corporate governance, or you hope it's going to be. The thing is set up so that there should be good governance, but it's not always followed in practice. How damaging do you think some of the issues we've had this year, the bust up on the board at Scottish Mortgage, that was, I think, unfortunate. It was very public. And the uh, non-executive director resigned saying he didn't like uh, some of the way things were going there and wasn't being listened to. And then we've had the problem of a couple of investment trusts whose shares have been suspended. 
home reet and what was Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact and so on. How damaging do you regard those kind of episodes? They're all very different, of course, but how damaging do you think they've been to the sector as a whole, where you have a publicly listed investment trust that's accountable under the Companies Act and the listing rules and so on, running into uh, significant problems? That shouldn't really happen, should it? Yeah, any time that the sector is in the news for the wrong reasons is never helpful to the sector as a whole. I think I would though pick out one point you made there, which is you know, each of these were very distinct, separate issues. So it's difficult for me to comment on them individually, but I don't think any are symptomatic of a particular problem with governance in the sector as a whole, which I would argue is, as you rightly pointed out, very strong. And one of the, the strengths and benefits of investing in the sector is having that board there. I think just tying that to your previous point about board composition, you one of the things we have seen is greater diversity of background and skill set coming into the sector in terms of the the non-executive director community. And I see that as a good thing. And particularly in the alternative space where you are investing in different asset classes and you need that asset class expertise on the board and things to provide that oversight, we're seeing much more of that. So people coming from corporate backgrounds, et cetera, not necessarily from investment or financial services backgrounds. So, yeah, yeah. are there going to be periodically issues popping up here and there? Potentially, that's to a degree inevitable. But I don't think that that is symptomatic of any particular weakness or problem with governance in the sector as a whole, which I would argue is a key strength of the sector and and a benefit to investors. I mean, one of the criticisms that you sometimes hear about investor trust is that the boards are effectively too snug with the investment advisors. They've often been appointed on the basis of recommendations by the investment advisors when it, at an IPO, for example. That's often the, the board is selected by the investment advisor, or at least strongly influenced by that. Do you think that's a valid criticism? Personally, I don't. I don't think that's true. And it's certainly not true in terms of, you know, one of the bits I love about my job the most is going out and meeting with member boards and and attending some of their board meetings and things or parts of their board meetings. And and that's certainly not my experience. And I think actually, if we tie this back to where we started our conversation about some of the challenges in the market at the moment and with extended discounts, etc, that we've seen during the course of this year, Boards have been exceptionally active on the part of shareholders during the course of the last year. Just to throw a few statistics at you, know, we've seen nine manager switches this year. So nine investment trust change manager during the course of the year, which certainly doesn't suggest a snug relationship with the investment manager. And that's the most that we've seen in any year since 2009. We've seen four mergers, um, eight liquidations completed in the year, and four more have been announced they're expected to complete in 2024. We've seen record share buybacks where boards are trying to address the discounts. We've seen 26 fee changes, which is on top of the 27 fee changes that we saw last year to the benefit of investors. Again, you would argue that doesn't particularly smack of a cosy relationship with the fund manager. So I think when you look at all of those things and all of the activity and and actions that boards are taking, particularly in the face of current market challenges around discounts and things that we've seen this year, I think there's strong evidence to refute the claim that the board manager relationship is a cosy one. I suppose one of the things that has happened this year is that because discounts have widened over the last two years, and consistently almost until very recently, as you pointed out earlier, that's thrown up a number of issues which boards have started to deal with. Perhaps they could have dealt with them a little bit earlier in some cases. But the fact that the persistence of this discount widening, but then it becomes quite important to distinguish between what is actually causing the discount and uh, what you can do something about. So discount share buybacks, obviously one thing you can do, but some boards argue that that would be damaging to their potential investment opportunities if they do that and so on. 
and then and there's there the is, cost there disclosure no... and things like that, which are also relevant, I'm sure. So it's a complicated field. So you can't give kind of specific generalized solutions, but you still think that boards have done enough overall to deal with this issue. The problem is, Jonathan, as you identify, there's no one prescription that is suitable for everybody. As I said earlier, not least because if you take a liquid equities portfolio, your ability to stand behind a share buyback policy is much easier than if you're operating a portfolio of real assets and, you know, be that wind farms or properties or whatever, you haven't got the liquidity there to approach buybacks in the same way. So there isn't a sort of common prescription. But I think that the list of things that I just gave you demonstrates that across the piece, boards are actively looking at this, actively looking at what they can do and, and taking the action that's appropriate in their particular circumstances. And I don't think investors can ask a great deal more than that, really, of boards in terms of making sure that they're on it, they're aware of the issues and that they're, they're identifying what they can do within the scope of their capabilities to address those. I suppose one of the longer term issues, though, that we might talk about, which is related to this, I think, is about liquidity in investment trust shares. We do know that a number of wealth managers and others, uh, institutional investors are saying that they need size and they need liquidity in order to be able to invest in that. That is a threat to the viability of the sector as a whole, is it not? I mean, if you look at the number of investment trusts that have a market capitalization below some wealth managers say 500 million now, that's a substantial proportion of the universe. So do you think that is a continuing threat to the sector, the inability for particularly uh, large or consolidated wealth managers, for example, to invest in the sector? Does that concern you? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of reasons for that. Those wealth managers' appetites partly has been affected by an asset allocation shift as a function of the change in interest rates, partly because of cost disclosures that you mentioned, and partly because of, of liquidity and scale. And we've seen consolidation in the wealth management space to the point at which, particularly where they're operating centralized investment propositions, they are looking at moving larger pools of money around and therefore need greater liquidity in the underlying investments. In reality, the sector has been scaling up significantly and some of the merger and liquidation activity I referred to earlier is is addressing that in part. But the average size of an investment company now is significantly greater than it was even five years ago, certainly 10 years ago. And that, I suspect, is a trend that we're likely to see continue in part to address those demands from investors to have that greater liquidity. So you mentioned ESG a couple of times, and you seem to be saying that you're in favour of continued progress towards implementing ESG policies and disclosing what they are. It is, of course, the case that we've seen a lot, particularly in America, that there's been a bit of a backlash against ESG as a kind of factor that should be taken into account when choosing or managing investment trusts. What is your position on that? Do you think that this basically tied towards greater incorporation of ESG factors and a related disclosure is a good thing and that must continue at the level at which it is now? Some people find that quite difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an issue which is of importance to investors. I wouldn't overstate that and say that it's necessarily, certainly not for most people, for some it is, but not for most people, the the most important factor when making their investment decisions, but it is a factor that investors look at. And I think that investors want to know what companies are doing, but they don't want that to be overblown. So there's been a lot of criticism around greenwashing and things, not particularly of our sector, but of the market more broadly. And I think the proposals of the FCA and and having a clearer, stricter labelling regime will help cut through a lot of that. 
And because investment companies can invest in real assets and in illiquid assets and the like, they can support some of the new technologies around battery storage or wind generation, renewable energy, those sorts of things, which are really going to be transformational as far as particularly the move to net zero is concerned. Similarly, where you are investing in assets with perhaps more of a social impact or social purpose, again, investment companies can provide the right structure to do that. So I wouldn't suggest for a moment that ESG and ESG reporting will be a large part or a key priority for all our members. But I think where you have an investment company that is doing something specific and has a claim to make and and, and wants to put that in front of investors, they need to be able to do that and they need to be able to cut through noise or greenwashing potentially by others so that investors can clearly see the choices that they're making. So yeah, it's something that we welcome. I don't think it's going to go away. I hear what you say about aspects of the American market, but I do think investors want to know what companies are doing in this regard. So if you're looking ahead now, let's just turn to looking ahead. What's on your agenda now? There's always work to do to make the sector better and more accountable and all the rest of it. What would be top of your list of challenges you're facing and perhaps also the risks you're facing? There's always work to do. So I was reading the Christmas edition of The um, the Spectator on the way home and there's a piece in the editorial there which refers to, um, it tries to look on the positive side. There's a statement in there that says, it's human nature to take success for granted and to focus on the problems that remain. And I think that that's true to some extent for all of us. But I think when we look forward into 2024, the number one priority obviously is resolving the cost disclosure issue. And as I said earlier, we'd expect a consultation to be coming forward from the FCA early in the new year. So that will be our primary focus from a a sort of regulatory and lobbying perspective is to resolve that issue. And there are a few other um, sort of regulatory pieces around the FCA's new labelling regime on ESG investing, those sorts of things, and and embedding some of the requirements there, looking at diversity and what we're doing on both continuing in terms of gender diversity, but ethnic diversity as well, and the progress the sector's making there. So I think there's a number of those things. But I think the other big one I would point to is the piece around shareholder engagement and how we engage with shareholders across the piece. I think one of the interesting things is that Baroness Altman clearly has a history of interest in the pension sector. And one of the things I'd like to see is more pension funds using and investing in investment companies. What do we do to to unlock that? And if the government wants more pension money directed at UK equities, infrastructure, real assets, etc., how do we position investment companies to be that vehicle of choice and enable pension schemes to invest more money into the sector? How do we encourage more retail investors to both invest in the sector, but also then engage with the companies and and in particular vote their shares. I think that's a, another critical part. You know, we're seeing a greater proportion of our members' shares being held by retail investors for some of the reasons we were talking about earlier. And, and retail often provides that sort of marginal buyer in the market. But we need them then to engage with the corporate governance aspects of us as a sector because failure to do so just concentrates the power in the hands of the remaining institutions on the register. So it's important that retail investors understand both the importance and the need for them to engage and to vote and being a good corporate citizen and engaging in the market as an investor comes with some responsibilities as well. And and it would be good to do more on that. So I think there's a number of things there, but cost disclosures would be top of the list. And then then some other things as we go through the course of the year. And clearly, we'd like to see discounts continue to narrow as they have done in the last six months and get back to the point where we can have more vibrant capital raising and and secondary issues and the like, and see some of those mandates increase in size, which then address some of the scale and, and, and other points that you've raised. So you hope that some of these issues start to create a bit more of a virtuous circle. 
But um, I think one of the main things is coming out of the autumn statement, it's great to see investment companies being talked about, you know, and just back to that point about Baroness Altman's bill and, and other things, you know, it's great to see investment companies up there with the attention of government and being recognised for the great contribution that we're making to the economy, to the listed market, etc. So um, long may that continue and, and our challenge is to leverage that for the benefit of the sector. So that was Richard Stone, the Chief Executive of the Association of Investment Companies, discussing a challenging year for the Investment Trust universe. All hopes and attention now turns to 2024, and we'll be talking about that next week and for many weeks to come as we track the progress of the markets. Is the recovery going to continue into the spring and beyond, or are we going to just see the recession that many expected in 2023 to happen in the coming 12 months? And if so, what impact will that have on the performance and rating of the investment trust sector? Lots to look forward to. And once again, I conclude by wishing you a happy and prosperous new year and thanking you for all your support over the past 12 months, which has seen listener numbers for the podcast and subscriber numbers for the Moneymakers Circle increase significantly. So many thanks to all of those who have contributed to those uh, encouraging and resilient numbers. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.